What an awesome song. It's been sung for many generations, written in the 1700s. Think back to 9-11, I remember one scene when a bagpipe player was playing in a memorial service at Ground Zero, honoring all the firemen, all the policemen, all the workers in the Twin Towers. And what did he play? What was the song of choice to, for all of America to mourn and to, and to remember those who gave their life in our, in our country? Probably one of the most tragic days on American soil. They played Amazing Grace. When you look back in history, Amazing Grace has been one of those songs that has uh, uh, encouraged people at funeral times and has even been sung in weddings. It has been a song that uh, Fannie Lou Hammer said that was sung in the Civil Rights March when they were going in Mississippi to register to vote for the very first time, Amazing Grace was sung. One of those songs that kind of sticks with us. Now, I, I, it's funny, as you, as you think about it, we've gone from, uh, from keyboards to chords today. We used to hear it on an organ. Maybe you heard it on a piano. Maybe you heard it on a keyboard. Today we hear it on, on, on chords, uh, uh, strung on a guitar. What happens is, is there's an evolution that happens with, with music, and many times songs will come and go, and, and the beat and the, and, and the style of the music will come and go. It's, it just matches the culture in which you live. But it's amazing. You have a classic Whenever that song will transcend time. You have a classic, such as Amazing Grace, that even today we hear it differently, sung differently. Now I hear people say this, I think it's funny when they say it, but I love it, Brother Mike. Whenever they sing it like it was meant to be sung. You know, in that country church, on those hard pews, and and I hear it sung with the with the piano, and we sing it slow, kind of like we did there at the end, and not this with the with the beat of the drums and all that. The thing is, is that that's not actually how it was written. It was actually written, and it was written as a chant. And so, if we were to go back to the original and it's in, it, 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 how it was done in the very beginning, it was a chant because that was what was culturally done at that time in worship. It's an amazing song. Amazing song, I hate to be redundant, but it is. It's an amazing topic when you think about grace and what it is and what it means. And, 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 and to live without it is, is, is death. To live with it is life. To not have it and not to be given grace, you literally suck the marrow out of somebody's life. But to give grace, you can extend somebody's life. Chuck Swindoll, a great writer, and pick up any book that he has, and I believe it will be a sound book to read. But he wrote a book a few years ago called Grace Awakening. And he mentions in there, in the very first chapter, what can you expect from studying and living in grace, living out grace in your life and studying it in life. He, he gave four promises. He says you can expect to gain a greater appreciation for God's gifts when you study and learn and live grace. Number two, he said you can expect to spend less time and energy critical of and concerned about others' choices. I like that one. When we learn to live in grace, we're not going to be quite as critical about other people as we are maybe whenever we don't live in grace. Number three, you can expect to become more tolerant and less judgmental. More tolerant and less judgmental. The last one, though, I really like. You can expect to take a giant step toward maturity. When he said that, I said, that is it. I'm afraid that grace, many times though we may call a church grace, though we may sing the song grace, I'm afraid we just haven't put our arms around grace enough and lived it out enough in our life that we really know what it is. But when we do, you talk about a giant step forward. 
we will then, when we live in grace and we function in grace and we give grace and we receive grace, we will then begin to understand forgiveness. We will then begin to understand love and unconditional love. We will then begin to understand what it means to live in harmony and unity with other people when we live and function in a grace atmosphere. When we live and function with a grace attitude, we will begin to see a difference in our relationships, a difference in our marriage, a difference at work, a difference wherever we are. When grace is a part of our life, it will be a giant leap, step forward in our own lives. Here's a life principle. I want you to jot it down. Grace is never given. Excuse me. Grace is given. It is never deserved. If you deserve it, you've earned it. If you earn it, you own it. If it is given to you, it is a gift. If you receive a gift, you are loved. Grace is never give, is always given. It is never deserved. I never deserve grace. It is always something that somebody gives me freely. It's not when I do X, Y, and Z, then I will receive grace. Grace is given freely from the giver. Am I a grace giver? Am I a grace receiver in my life? What makes grace so amazing? Grace becomes amazing when it works in us. When it's not just a topic you study on Sunday morning, when it's not just a song you sing about in the shower or at a funeral or wherever it is that you might sing Amazing Grace. Grace is amazing when grace is at work in us and when grace is at work through us. So really the question is, in my life and in your life today, is grace a part of my life? Now, not that I go to Grace Point Church, not that I sing Amazing Grace, not can I define it theologically and practically, but is grace a part of my life? Is it really a part of my life? That's, that's the burning question for us today. That's, what, makes, that's what, what will make grace amazing in our life. There are two, two ways I think we can see that grace is amazing in our life. Real quickly, one, grace awakens the spirit of a man. And when I say man, I'm saying mankind. But grace will awaken the spirit inside of us. We must realize this, if you haven't realized it today, hopefully you'll realize it today, is that you are really asleep in your spirit. Until you've encountered grace, you're asleep in your spirit. Actually, the Bible calls it dead in your spirit. That we live a dead man's life, we're walking dead people, until we experience grace. When we experience grace, it is like sunlight to a flower. It is like rain to a flower. It brings life to us. It brings life to our life that we might understand what it means to live a kind of supernatural life. Because we live in a give-and-take society, an eye-for-an-eye society. You, you, I work hard, you give me something. I've earned it. And okay, there's some, there's some play for that. But when we step beyond the natural to the supernatural, it's because we've learned to live in grace. And unless I learn that, unless I experience that, unless my spirit is awakened inside of me. See, I believe that everybody in this room, and I'm making a broad assumption, but you tell me if I'm wrong. I believe everybody in this room wants their spirit alive. I believe they'll search for it in a bottle. They'll search for it in money. They'll search for it in many different avenues of life. They'll search for it in relationships, good or bad relationships. They'll search for it because they want life in their spirit. It is a soul craving that we have. That we want to have life. And I want to tell you today that I really believe with all my heart that grace is that element. That when you experience it, your life begins to live. Maybe for the first time. 
And maybe you're 30 or you're 40 and you're just now going to experience God's grace. But every religion of the world wants, wants to have their spirit alive. A Buddhist will want to, to achieve nirvana and have that ultimate peace in their life. That will be the desire of their heart and their life. A Muslim, as we referred to last week, will spend all of their life praying, all of their life, giving to the poor all of their life, only the hope maybe someday at the end they'll find favor with Allah and make it into heaven. But no guarantee. Because they want, they'll even give up their life and give up their children's life so that hopefully maybe someday they will, they will experience grace. Jehovah's Witnesses only would hope that they would be a part of the 144,000, that grace would be given to them. The Mormons would believe that if you're going to be a part of the celestial kingdom, one must be baptized in Mormon, keep the, the, the word of wisdom, and abstain from alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine, and all the other things in life, if you're ever going to experience the grace of God's celestial kingdom. Hindu would rely upon karma to hopefully you'll live a good life and it'll, it will get you next to the next level in life and that will get you, if you live a good life in that life, you'll get to the next level and karma just will hopefully work out in your life and you will progress forward and eventually achieve uh, the life of grace and the life of completeness. Bono said it like this, was speaking to Harvard students in, at the at Harvard students in 2001, he said, I am a singer and a songwriter. I'm a father. I'm a friend of dogs. Interesting. I am a, a, a sworn enemy of saccharine. And I believe in grace over karma. Now, why would Bono choose grace over karma? Because karma would, would tell you that if you were to, to live the right life, that you would eventually progress to a better and better, better, better state in life. Grace. Because the, the reality is that I can never trust my life. My spirit is dead. All of our spirits are dead until we experience grace. Take your Bibles and be open to the book of John. Ironically, we were there last week. John chapter 1. And I tried to push away from this passage of Scripture, but whenever you're talking about grace, you can't skip past John chapter 1. Because John chapter 1 helps you identify the source of grace. If grace awakens my spirit, if grace will give me life to live, then where do I find this grace? Because if you're like most people in this world, you're not going to find it at the office and you may not find it in your relationship at home. You may not even know what it's like in some religious settings. And so where do you really find grace that will give life to your spirit, life to your life? In John chapter 1, in verse 14, is where we read a little bit last week, but I want to pick up there again. Verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, speaking here of Jesus. All right, and I love this verse. This is one of my favorite verses in all the New Testament. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, if you want to, as I have done in my Bible, I've underscored every time in the next few verses it uses the word grace. Because if the Bible says something once, we ought to listen to it. If it says it twice, you really ought to pay, pay attention. By the third time, you, be, you ought to be leaning in, okay? Leaning in and taking notes. So he's really going to emphasize something here about grace. So Jesus was full of what? He was full of grace. He was full of truth. What a balanced life. He knew how to, to state a standard and to live by a standard and to uphold a standard, but he also knew how to give grace at the same time. And John testified of him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, 
he who comes after me is a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So John the Baptist is saying, hey, listen, though I was born first and though I may be the elder, listen, this man Jesus is a far greater rank than I am. He has always existed. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. For of his fullness we have, for of his, excuse me, for of his fullness we have all received grace, there it is again, upon grace. For the law was given to us through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me right now? Father, we bow before you. we've just had an awesome time to sing about and to hear in this reader's theater and to think about, Lord, our own tendencies to be judgmental, our own tendencies to cast blame and to maybe even subconsciously elevate ourselves higher than somebody else. But in reality, Lord, we're not. There's as many different skeletons in my closet as there is in other people's closets. They're just different and they look different. And that, Father, outside of your absolute amazing grace, I'm dead. Lord, you came to breathe life into us. You came to breathe grace and mercy into us. You came to model unconditional love and forgiveness that we can take to our marriages, to our children, that we can pass on to the next generation, that we can share with our coworkers. You allowed us, Lord, as we experience your grace, to live like no one else. To live at a higher plane and a higher level and to do things that are, that are very uncommon in this world. So Lord, I would pray that we would, we would focus in here for a few moments. And it would be my prayer that Lord, everybody in this room would have their spirit awakened if they're not already. I pray that every believer in this room would take a giant step toward maturity today as we learn not only to receive but to give grace, to live in grace, to experience grace. Lord, we bless you and we thank you for these moments together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In this passage of Scripture, as we see grace, grace, grace upon grace, you can't skip over it. Jesus Christ came that we might experience grace and truth through Him that we could receive in no other way. He wants to step into our life and awaken us and to give us a new life. You say, but Mike, you don't understand the dirt, the trash of my life. Well, you don't, let me say it back to you, you don't understand grace. You don't understand grace because I don't care if you're an axe murderer, I don't care if you're a rapist, I don't care if you're a tax evader, I don't care. You put your dark, deadly sins on a piece of paper, and I can take a big stamp and put grace across every single thing. But no, 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 you understand, if somebody kills somebody, surely God doesn't have grace for that. The great thing is about grace, and the most undescribable thing about grace is that you can't contain it. 
And if you could contain it, then you could have limitations to it. But you can't contain grace. Grace spills over the edges. Grace spills into people's lives that are, that are dark and dirty with sin. But you said, again, you don't know how bad and ugly and nasty it has been. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 is a great verse again. It says, the law came to make sin worse. Interesting concept that I won't go into right now. But when sin grew worse, God's grace increased. See, what happens is whenever I measure up and mount up and stack up and and, and point out all the, the faults of my life, you know what God says, you know what, I'll give you a thimble more full of grace. No, no, no. You don't say, mine's higher over here. No, no, I'll give you that much more grace. I don't care how bad and ugly it can be, God's grace is still greater. And again, sometimes you come into church and you walk out of here and you're kicking yourself and, and, and you're feeling the guilt and the heap of guilt. That is absolutely not God's intention for you to leave here like that. Now, granted, there are times that there's a job of a, of a pastor is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comforted. There are, there are times that we have to point out things in people's lives and say, hey, this isn't right, but it's so that we can get on the right track. But God's ultimate aim is not for you to walk out of here in guilt, but to walk out of here in freedom. And He will awaken your spirit when you live in and experience His grace. The, the, the crudest example, I didn't look for a crude example, but, but what's, a, what's a good example of grace in a person's life? And the best thing I could think of was oil in a car. I don't know how hot an engine will get without oil, but you won't drive it very far. You may not even get it to the interstate. If you take off out of here today and you don't have oil in your engine, all of a sudden things begin to rub, things begin to get hot, things begin, and your engine will lock up maybe before you get to the end of the street. Your engine needs oil. Your engine is, your oil is life to your engine. You don't have it, you don't go very far in life. If you don't have grace, you know what happens? You're going to have heat. You're going to have friction. You're going to have tension. You're going to have disagreement. And you're going to mount up. Listen, you're going to mount up in your life all of your sins and all of your shortcomings and all of your your, your relationship shortcomings and all of your family member shortcomings. And it's just going to pile up. And if you don't know where grace is and you haven't lived in grace and you're not living in grace, guess what? You will lock up and freeze up and you will go nowhere in life. But when you experience grace and you learn to give grace and you learn to live in grace, it will awaken your spirit. It will set you free. It will enable you like nothing else. I'll tell you the story of, of John Newton, who in the movie Amazing Grace is, is represented. But John Newton was, was born into a, into a family of, of slave traders. He literally grew up. All he knew, all he had represented to him was slave trade. At 11, he took his first voyage on a slave ship. He was a sure inheritance. He had a sure inheritance of a vibrant, strong, growing business in his own culture, in his own, in his own native land of Great Britain. He could have made a living for a long time in slave trade. Not the most reputable business. At that time, it was a way to make money. At that time, it was a way to sure it up. But there was a voyage that he went on, and I don't know exactly all the details about the voyage, but the voyage was so intense, he nearly lost his life. It took him to a state of repentance, a state of brokenness. So he looked to God, and he then realized that, that what he was doing and everything that he was about and the 20,000 slaves that he had carried to the West Indies was in his life. He called them ghosts. 
But out of that, he received new life. And he wrote the words, Amazing Grace. And one of the phrases that's in the movie says this. He says, and he's old and his eyesight's going away. He says, you must, you must use it. Because he's talking to Wilberforce about using his diaries and his confessions. He says, you must use it. Names, records, ship records, port people. Everything I remember is here. Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. He said, I'm a great sinner and God's a great Savior. I'm a great sinner and God's a great Savior. What happened? He experienced grace. His spirit was awakened. Number two. Second thing that happens when we live in grace and we operate in grace and we function in grace and we experience grace is grace strengthens the weakness within a man. Grace will will strengthen the weakest part of a man. And again, I wish I could take you to the movie clip to show you where actually John uh, Newton was not the main character of the movie. It was William Wilberforce. And to tell you his story, he was a young parliamentarian, about 21 years of age, that went into, went into the British uh, House of Commons and began to have burdened upon his soul the, 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 the struggle and the, and, and the evil of slave trade. Now, already slave trade was abolished in Great Britain, yet if you owned a ship you could, and you were a Briton and you flew the British flag, you could carry slaves to other parts of the world. So that's what they did. That's how the business continued to go on. Wilberforce took that on as his mission in life. In fact, he said in his, on, uh, on his 28th, uh, when he was 28 years old, on October 28, 1787, he said, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of slave trade and the reformation of manners. Now, when I first read the reformation of manners, I thought he's going to help us know how to use a knife and fork at the table. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about bringing godliness back to our country. I want to see godliness back in our country. I want to see the slave trade. Now listen, this was his goal. This was his passion. This was his calling in life. He was a 21-year-old, inexperienced, unable. He was swimming completely upstream in life. But when you live in operating grace, you're able to do things that you wouldn't normally be able to do. He strengthens the weaknesses of a man. Of mankind, He strengthens us in ways that, that where we are weak. And for 46 years, listen to this, 46 years, this man, Wilberforce, fought uphill in the House of Commons to abolish slavery. 46 years, three days after his death, they abolished slavery, slave trade. What are we willing to spend our life on? What is God calling us to do that's so much beyond us Are we living in the comfort of our own selves? Again, if we live in grace, we're going to take strides and maturity strides in our own life that we will be able to be awakened where we've been dead. We will be able to do what we could not do before. To live in grace, to operate in grace, enables me to live in ways that I couldn't live before. Take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at two different passages of Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If you were to ask Paul, Paul, what would you prefer to be, strong or weak? Surprisingly, he'd say, I want to be weak. Because he realized in his weakness, he could be strong. Paul had an amazing event happen in his life, and I'll just give you a little bit of the background of it. 
because you can read the whole thing in the earlier verses of chapter 12. But, but Paul was, had a vision, and he was one of the few people to be able to see into heaven and to go and to experience into heaven. He called it the third heaven. If you think about that, we live in an atmosphere that we call the heaven. This is an atmosphere. We call it an atmosphere, but it's, it's the first heaven. The second heaven would be the galaxy that we look at. The third heaven, the ultimate heaven that we all want to, want to be at is a relationship with Jesus Christ. When he awakens our spirit, he puts a place for us in his eternal third heaven out there. Well, in that whole process of him experiencing that, God also gave him something. He gave him what he called a thorn in the flesh. This thorn in the flesh was going to hold him back. The thorn in the flesh was going to give him a weakness. And we don't know exactly what the thorn in the flesh is, and that's a little bit of the mystery of the whole thing, and there's been a lot been written on what it is. Was it a physical issue? Was it a, was it a mental issue? What was the issue that was holding him back? It doesn't really matter what it is. Because you know what? Everyone in this room today, God may be calling you forward like a Wilberforce to give your life and to swim upstream and to do something you've never done before, you couldn't do outside of God's grace and strength. But, but he's calling you and everything you can think of is, no, I can't do that, no, I can't do that, no, I don't have the resources, that can't be done, blah, 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 right on down the line. Well, God may put you in that state of weakness. You say, but my, 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 my calling is here, but my strengths are here. How can I even live in the two? Exactly where Paul was. Paul in... 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Or, excuse me, chapter 2, uh, excuse me. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. So many numbers in here. It says it like this. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation of this, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that he might leave me, that it might, that it might leave me. I just want you to note that. For those out there who have that faith that if you blab it, you can grab, blab it and grab it, name it and claim it kind of faith, I want you to notice that Paul the Apostle is sitting here praying, God, take this from me, take this from me. Whatever it is, take this from me. It's a limitation on my life. Praise it three times. He implored the Lord three times. Verse 9. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. Do you see grace? There it is. Underscore that word again. My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. And you might underscore power because I want to come back and draw a connection there. Most gladly, therefore, Paul's speaking now. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weaknesses. Again, Paul's now saying, hey, listen, make me weak, God. I would rather boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am, I will, I am well content with, with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Did you notice what he said there? Did you notice when he's quoting from God, what God spoke into his heart? He says, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Very key phrase there. Notice that God connects grace and power. That whenever I am living under God's grace, I'm also living in his power. I am able to now do what I could not do before because of the limitations of my life. Why do I want to have grace? 
Because it awakens my spirit. Why do I want to have grace? Because it gives me strength when I am weak. When I have my inabilities standing at me, when I have all, all my shortcomings staring and glaring at me, that's when I want to be living in God's grace. When I am weak, then I become strong. Listen, if life is easy for you, then you might want to step up to the plate. All right? Because God is going to challenge us in our life. And he's wanting us not to live in our own sufficiency. He's wanting us to live in his sufficiency. Can you appreciate the difference? His sufficiency means I, means I can't do it in myself. I need you, God. Here's a question for you that I really, it's one of your burning questions. I really want you to think about this. What are you doing in your life right now that if God doesn't show up, you fail? What are you doing in your life right now that if God doesn't show up, you will fail? Because Jesus puts us in situations where we are absolutely, completely dependent upon Him. I was thinking about just this past week and preparing for this, how can I share my story? It seems like I'm the one always talking and you're always the one hearing my, my stories. So what can I share that, to, to illustrate this in my own life? And then I just began to think, Mike, your whole life, all of your flagship moments in life, all of your high watermark moments in life have always been times in your life where you absolutely could not do it on your own and you needed God's grace to sustain you and to get you through it. Think back to when my mother was raising three boys and no child support and on a hairdresser's salary and she was raising us up and she came into our room one night, she tells me this, and she said, God, I, I can't be the father and the mother, but I can be a mother if you'll be the father. She told me she prayed that prayer, and, and I'm thankful that she did because you know, I'm okay. His grace was sufficient for that circumstance. I think about the time whenever I was just a young teenager and I was beginning to start to chase after drinking and, and drugs and starting to go down that path that was not going to be a good path for me. It was going to be a path that was going to lead me to a lot, of, a lot of misery and heartache. And I can remember two coaches stepping into my life and speaking promise and possibility into my life. And I think about how God put these people, and I think about our coaches in our church here. Guys, y'all are, gals, you're important. You play such a vital role in some of these kids' lives that don't have a father, don't have a mother. You know what? God's grace was sufficient for me because he got me off that track. He got me on this track. Think about the time when God called me into the ministry, and this was probably one of the biggest times because I was not academically strong enough to go into the ministry and to do all the study that needed to go in, to study all the ancient languages and all the theology, and I just couldn't do that. And it was, and in fact, it was this passage of Scripture that was very instrumental in the whole process. It was like God says, okay, you can't, but I can. My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in your weaknesses, Mike. When God began to call Lori and I to go internationally and to live internationally and to think globally about our ministries, and I thought, wow, God, I can't do that. I'm very comfortable with my Walmart and my McDonald's at, at arm's length, and I'm very comfortable with my American lifestyling. God, you would never call me outside of my comfort zone to, to learn a different language and to live in a different culture, but he did, and his grace was sufficient for me, for power is perfected in weakness. I think when God called us back here to start a church, we had two months severance salary to start a church. And we didn't know who was going to be a part of the church. And here we go, wah, 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 pack up the bags and head back to America. And, you know, there's a church on every corner. And how in the world are you going to start a church and make a difference in, in, in an area? 
How are you going to do that? Because my grace is sufficient for you. Power is perfected in weakness. Whenever we began to build this ministry campus and we were going to buy 20 acres of land and and there was about 100 of us, 150, maybe maybe 200 on a good day at that time. And how in the world are you going to, and that's children included, okay? So we're going to rob their piggy bank or something like that. Um, we, we maybe have done that a few times. But anyway, uh, how are you going to build? How are you going to buy a campus? How are you going to do all this? How are you? How are you? How are you? And all those questions are flying through my mind. And you know what? My grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. I think about when we started the church, we wanted to be a very global impact church. We want people going out from our church and reaching the world and going to different places around the world. And I have a goal that we'll send out a thousand people from our church, short term, long term, around the world. Do you realize this past month, eight different families went on three different mission trips to Thailand, to Guatemala, and to Mali? We have another team leaving next week to Mali. We have teams forming to go to Mexico and to Haiti and to Mali again this summer. What an awesome thing. How could we do that? We can't do that, but my grace is sufficient for you for powers perfected in weakness. What are you doing that if God doesn't show up, you fail? Because when you're living in grace, He will awaken your spirit. When you're living in grace, He will give you the strength that no matter what your weakness is, He can fill in the blank. Grace is defined one way, just one, many ways probably, but this is a great definition of it. In an acrostic form, you can write it in your notes, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. What happens when I enter into a relationship with God? He opens up all of heaven, and He does it via His Son, And he says, here I am. I'm going to give you everything there is. And everything there is, is Jesus. And when I connect with God through Jesus, now all of a sudden, wow, I have all the resources of heaven at my disposal. I have all the life that I could possibly imagine through him. He has awakened my spirit. He has given me the strength for my weaknesses. And that is a marvelous picture of grace. There's probably no better verse to read on grace than Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Guys, would you pop it up on the screen? Because I want us all to read it. I think it's going to be on the screen. Maybe it's not. It's not. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God not of works, lest every man should boast. You know what? For by grace have you entered into a relationship with Him. I hope you have that awakening experience. I hope that you are living right now and and, and experiencing His strengthening, His empowering that only He can give through grace. Would you pray with me? Father, your grace is more than just a song to sing about a church name to hang on the side of a building. It's a life to be lived. It's a relationship to be experienced. It is, it is new life. It is hope. It is power. And Father, to live a day without it is to live 
like an engine without oil, like a life without breath, to have relationships without grace (laughs) is to have a very tumultuous relationship, to even have one at all. Lord, I would pray that your grace would truly flow down right now. We would sing of your grace, that we would live in your grace, that we would give out your grace when we go from this place. Lord, we bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name.